Hello, Ecclesia. We had some technical difficulties, so it's a joy to be recording with you here during the week as we continue our series looking at what it means to live as our best selves, our most authentic selves. And last week, we started by looking at the sense of self that Jesus held. You know, it's so easy for us to forget because we are often not careful readers of the story, but the Bible is trying to bring us into this incomparable reality that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And it's often that human element that we miss. And we, we miss Jesus's example because we discount his humanity. But if we receive the biblical narrative and all that it's trying to immerse us in, then Jesus was truly the fullest self who ever lived. And we looked at this last week, his own sense of self. Jesus lived without much of the shadow that burdens us and weighs us down. Jesus lived fully, transparently before God, doing his will. Jesus was the fullest human who ever lived. And so we started with his example. In the foundational moment of Jesus's self-understanding, how he understood his own self, comes in each of the four Gospels as Jesus goes to be baptized. A dove descends upon him. A voice breaks in from the heavens and pronounces, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And we talked about how everything that Jesus will do flows out of this moment. Before Jesus will accomplish any of the things that he will accomplish, before he will heal people's diseases and maladies, before he will cast out demons, before he will bring the kingdom of God near by giving his life on a cross, Jesus knows who he is in light of God's blessing and love. Everything Jesus does flows from an original blessing. This allows Jesus to live as the fullest, truest version of a self. And when we entrust our lives to Jesus mysteriously, our lives are wrapped up in his life. What's true of him becomes true of us. We are in Christ. We are Christ's heirs. He has elevated us to the status of, of, of daughters and sons in the kingdom of God, everything that is his, we are co-heirs with him. And so just as he receives that blessing, this is my son, so God is trying to invite us to receive the blessing, to not have to strive for an identity, to not have to strive for an understanding of ourselves, but to truly know ourselves as it is revealed in the love of the Father. But if we're honest... It's difficult for many of us to accept this. Sure, we accept it in vague terms. Sure, God loves me. God accepts me because God loves and accepts everyone. But if many of us are honest, we don't believe that God truly accepts us. Or we ask ourselves a question. I mean, there's so much going on in the world. There's 8 billion people. There's all these things that are happening at so many different levels. Why and how? Could God be concerned with my little life? And so, we don't know what to do when we hear this phrase, God loves me, God accepts me. Or I think the other thing that we find 
when we examine ourselves is we find a bunch of desires and impulses and ambitions and then we come to church and we're just not real sure how all of these things fit together. It, it, it seems like it's so much easier to apply our ambition, our creativity to our job or to our studies, but when it comes to church, it just seems like we're being told to sit down and listen and believe the right things. And today, we want to explore the kind of self that we display before God. And as a way of beginning, I want to invite you to a brief spiritual exercise, whether you're listening to this on the podcast or you're watching on a video, just for a moment. As long as you're not driving, I want to invite you to close your eyes. I want you to picture yourself as you are right now. You're wearing the clothes that you're wearing. You, you are, have the level of sleep that you got last night. You are exactly as you are right now. Now, I want you to ask yourself the question, what does God see when he sees you? What does God see? What's his posture towards you? What's his attitude towards you? Now, God's gaze is not limited to our interior, or, or not limited to our exterior, but he can gaze into the interior as we're going to see today. And so what does God see as he peers deeper, as he looks at our motivations, our desires, our lusts? What does God see when he sees us? Just sit with that for just a moment. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I have friends in my life, and I've certainly felt this way in my own life at times. If, if I were honest about the way that God sees me, I would say, I think God's disappointed with me, or I think God wants more from me. Or maybe others would say, I just don't see any way that God understands me or relates to me. Now, with that thought in mind, how God sees you, I want you to think about yourself from your own vantage point. What do you know about yourself? What do you see when you look in this proverbial mirror and you think about your own life? How do you define yourself? How do you project yourself to others? It's those questions that we want to use as an entry point today. What are the stories and the scars that define the self that you carry and that you project into the world, and how does God see you? And today we want to look at how the scriptures invite us to understand and accept ourselves in the gaze of God. And in doing so, we're going to unpack aspects of what it means to be human, the exact kind of human that God has designed us all to be, and how we can hold these different aspects in the loving and transforming gaze of God. Psalm 139 is a masterclass in knowing the self as it, as it pertains to God's vision upon us, knowing the self before God. It's a reflection, a deep sense of knowing oneself and how God sees us. And we're going to look at this text today as a way of exploring just what it is exactly that God sees when he looks at us and how that actually helps us to know and to live out of our true selves. The psychologist David Benner says, The possibility of knowing yourself is grounded in the fact that yourself is already known to God. 
Kurt Thompson, another psychotherapist who specializes in interpersonal neurobiology, describes all of our fundamental needs as humans, a shared fundamental need to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. In his book, Soul of Desire, Kurt Thompson writes, the development of secure attachment is enabled by a child's experience of feeling seen, soothed, safe, and secure. We must first literally be seen across the entire breadth of our emotional condition. When we are in distress, we need to be comforted, to be soothed. When we are soothed, we develop a sense of safety or confidence in our bodies and in our environment, both physically and relationally. He goes on, these three needs to be seen, soothed, and safe make way for the fourth to be secure. Security is about being able, in the face of feeling seen, soothed, and safe, to move away from our relational base and step out to take the risk of new adventure. Whether that's across the crib, across the room, or across the country, it means we are willing to try new things and make mistakes, even difficult ones, because we know we have a place to return where we will once again be seen, soothed, and safe. It is significant to realize that the four S's, although they develop in early childhood, are necessary for growth and integration throughout our lives. Our need to be seen, soothed, and safe never stops. The only question is who is providing these experiences for us? And David, as he begins Psalm 139, begins with the fundamental reality that we saw in Jesus' own self-understanding last week. That our self is not achieved or grasped. We do not have to build up a self for ourselves. Ourselves are received as a gift from the blessing of the Father. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. David, and deeply reflecting on his life before God, has concluded that there never is a moment where he is removed from the presence of God. God is present at all times, not in some pantheistic sense, as if God is in the trees and the grass. No, but in a relational sense. God is relating to us at every single moment, every breath that we take. There is never a moment where we are not seen by God, where He is conferring upon us our fundamental need and identity. God sees the simple moments of sitting and rising as David reflects in the psalm. And then it says that God's right hand is there at every moment. In the scriptural imagination, God's right hand is his hand of salvation. It is his extending his presence to redeem, to heal, to set free. And there's never a moment both where we're not seen by God nor where his right hand is not present to lift us up, to guide us, to sustain us. David says that even in Sheol, God's presence and hand are there. And you have to understand, in the biblical anthropology, at the time when the psalm was written, people understood themselves as confined to this life. Life was defined as 
earthly life. There was not this uh, conception that was developed yet of an eternal sort of existence. Sheol was kind of like uh, the, the land of Hades, the land of the shades, where existence in some way continued, but not in any way that was recognizable to our earthly existence. David is saying even there, God's presence is available and near. There is nowhere that we are not, to use Kurt Thompson's language, seen, safe, soothed, and secure, because there is nowhere that we are not gazed upon by God and that his right hand is not there, which is mighty to save. David says that we were seen by God long before we ever showed up on earth. Verse 16 of Psalm 139. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance, in your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. Much like Jesus receives that word of affirmation and blessing long before he does any of the world-changing work that he will undertake, so you and I, before anything that we will accomplish, before you chose who you would marry, before you chose a career or what school you would attend, before any of our failures, before that moment of shame entered your life, before that thing happened to you, before those scars formed, before any of that, God saw you. And just as God sees in Genesis 1 and he evaluates that what he has made, what he has crafted with his hands is good, God saw you as good. We live out of the wellspring of an original blessing that never relents, even in the depths of the grave. David writes in verse 2 of Psalm 139, he says, You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Now, there's not a single one of us that even for a second would be comfortable if there was some machine that was developed that could transmit all of our thoughts at any given moment. Now, you might think I'm talking about Twitter, but I'm not talking about the thoughts that we can curate. I'm talking about the stuff that lives down beneath, the stuff that is going on underneath all of that presented self that we so carefully curate. Not a single one of us would be comfortable if our motivations, our desires, our lusts could be somehow broadcast for others to see. But here in the psalm, David testifies to the God that sees all of it, even concluding that such knowledge here referring to self-knowledge is too wonderful for him. David knows that God knows us far more deeply than we know ourselves. And we couldn't even take in all that God knows about us. Ronald Rollheiser, in writing of the human experience, reflects on the writings of Henri Nouwen. And he says of Nouwen's writings, he says, Nouwen introduces us to the complexity of our own lives and gives us permission to understand that such complexity is normal. We aren't necessarily over-greedy, over-sexed, or over-restless. We are just normal, complicated human beings walking around in human skin. That's what real life feels like. 
The scriptures are filled with stories of persons finding God and helping bring about God's kingdom, even as their own lives are often fraught with mess, confusion, frustration, betrayal, infidelity, and sin. There are no simple human beings immune to the spiritual, psychological, sexual, and relational complexities that beset us all. Our pathological complexity presses us toward ever greater light. An awareness and an acceptance of this pathological complexity of our own lives can be the place where we finally find the threads of empathy and forgiveness. Life is difficult for everybody. Everyone is hurting. We don't need to blame anyone. We are all beset with the same issues. Understanding and accepting that truth can help us to forgive each other and to forgive and accept ourselves. And as Rollheiser's reflecting on the human condition, especially as it is brought to us by the pen of Henri Nouwen, I think that we're, we, we realize one thing. We tend to think of our desires as negative. Our desires are something to be checked at the door when we walk into the presence of God. That they are a thing that must be resisted and hidden. But I don't think that's the sense that we're getting here in Psalm 139. The text is telling us that all of our lives are on display before God. All that makes us beautiful, all of our beauty, our glory, and as we'll see in just a moment, all of our brokenness. And God is not repulsed by these things being known to him. God does not remove himself. He does not turn away. No, there's nowhere that his gaze is not upon us. And his gaze is one of loving affirmation, of calling us to be conformed again to his image. The text tells us that God is not disappointed with us. Rather, that our desires, our hidden motivations, the thoughts in the secret places of our hearts are the grounds and doorway to intimacy with God. They are like a river. That no matter how distorted and broken those desires, those longings may manifest themselves in our lives. And they manifest themselves in some really broken ways that need to be offered into the healing hands of God. But all of that desire, if we trace those desires, no matter how fragmented, back to their source, we arrive at the fountainhead. That is God, the giver of every good gift. The one who made us with an eternal longing. Roheiser remarks that we all have an inherent grandiosity that comes from the way that God made us. Thomas Aquinas said that the only thing that could ever fulfill our desires is infinity, everything. Augustine, a master in what it means to long and desire, remarked that you have made us restless and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine went on to say, he said, the whole of life of the good Christian is a holy longing. That is our life to be trained by longing. And Ecclesia, I want to make this so clear to you. God wants to take those longings and shine his light upon them, revealing ourselves to us, but also moving us forward in imagination and vision. If we could be in touch with our longings, We can be in touch with what God has put us here in the world to do. We can have a desire and a longing that is big enough for God's kingdom, big enough for eternity. God sees our internal worlds fully, 
and draws near to us there. To know how God sees us and thus to know ourselves is to embrace this and embrace our hidden life as a doorway to the divine. This then becomes an invitation to ask a really scary question. And it's a question that Jesus of Nazareth will ask throughout his life. What do you want? What do you really want? What are the desires that are good and beautiful and true bubbling underneath the surface? What desires on this Martin Luther King weekend do you have for justice, for restorative economic practices, to do something with your life that serves and loves your neighbor? What kinds of things are bubbling underneath the surface of your life? Maybe those desires are exactly the place that God is meeting you. Now, does this mean if God sees our desires, even our broken desires, and he meets us there, he doesn't turn away? Does this mean that every impulse that we feel, that every desire that we feel should be, uh, should be satisfied, should be fed in the way that we think will instantly satisfy us? Of course not. Though our desires ultimately do point us to God, many of these desires, as we've talked about, have been distorted. The story of the garden haunts us still. Adam and Eve were created by God to be with God in intimacy and relationship. And yet, that desire distorts into the desire not to be with God, but to be like God. To grasp His power, objectified in a piece of fruit from a forbidden tree, absent relationship with God. We have desires that need to be sanctified in the presence of our loving Father, healed and transformed. These desires and, and the way that they cause us to live out of a, a sense that is not fully and truly who we are, not fully ourselves, many students of the human soul throughout the centuries have called the shadow. And we see this in the psalm. David writes in verse 11, he says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. John describes the coming of Jesus into the world as the light shining in the darkness, which the darkness cannot overcome. And just as God meets us in our desires, in our motivations, in our beauty, God meets us in our brokenness. God sees those distorted versions of ourselves, and He sees our shadows. And we're going to get into the shadow next week during our gathering and in our online teachings. But I simply want to illustrate that part of the point that what God sees when He sees us is our shadow, is our brokenness. God sees our beauty that longing for infinity, that longing that he will fill with himself throughout a time that we can't even begin to imagine, and he sees our brokenness, all that is yet unredeemed, all those desires that we've tried to satisfy with idols and by objectifying people. There's a startling turn at the end of this psalm, and uh, in my previous life, I was a worship leader. One of my jobs was to design the worship service. And one of the things you want to do is, is put the words of Scripture before people, allow them to meditate on them. But because you know that oftentimes you won't have a chance to interpret those words, you want to be, you want to be careful. 
And so I had picked this psalm as a psalm to be read at the beginning of the service. It's a beautiful psalm. I mean, think about so many of these verses are, are, are just words that resonate so deeply with us. You have searched me. You know me, O God. As we'll see in just a moment, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you. All this language of inviting God near, of acknowledging God's presence. And that all subsists through the first 18 verses. But there's something that happens to David in verse 19. And when I was designing this worship service, I don't know if I had just forgotten to tell the person who was reading the scripture for the day that they should stop at verse 18, or if they just had a Bible open and they just kept going. But you get to verse 19, and all this flowery language about God's nearness and his presence changes. Look at this. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, oh God. And the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. Now let's worship the Lord, right? It may seem out of place for words like these to be in this deep meditation on how God knows ourselves and ourselves before God. But it should cause us to ask a question. Why, in a psalm so filled with reflection on the depth of God's knowledge, does it conclude with this visceral prayer for God to act in vengeance, to execute justice? You see, we read this as Christians in light of Jesus' commands, do not hate your enemies, but love them. In light of Paul's exhortations, we do not fight against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people, but rather powers and principalities in high places. Now, we, we read this text through the lens of Jesus, and if we're honest, it just makes us a bit uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with that kind of hatred, even though, if I'm honest, I experience that in the depths of my heart. And I think that's the point. What we can see here. In a psalm so full of reflection on God's awareness and knowledge of ourselves, knowledge that is, as David says, too high for us, too wonderful for us, in a psalm such as this, there is also an awareness that God is aware of our shadow, of our brokenness, of our longings, which may be for justice, which again, a very good longing, but can work itself out in all sorts of destructive ways. David's life here in Psalm 139 is completely on display before God. David's beauty, all that makes him glorious and filled with kingdom ambition, and David's brokenness. And just as God sees David's best thoughts, God sees David's worst thoughts, his worst impulses, and God does not turn away his gaze. Our desires... Our motivations are a doorway to the divine because we live in an embodied world. We are called to integrate mind, soul, body, and spirit. It is important for us to remember this. God saw our frame. God sees our bodies, the embodied life that we will live. But it's also important for us to remember that we are not animals. We are not simply given over to instinct, our shadows, our impulses and desires that are not placed in the hands of God, the healer, to prune and restrain are, are lesser parts of us that God is transforming and sanctifying. Kurt Thompson writes, Desire does not exist merely as some independent phenomenon to which we respond. It is also something that, like any good gardener knows, must be pruned. 
So what does God see when he sees us? He sees the unredeemed, all that is still a work in progress. He sees those places where we respond with lust, anger, bitterness, envy, and hatred. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will reinforce this, that, that the inner parts of our lives are the grounds of God's gaze and his transformative work. Matthew 5, it says, You have heard it that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Jesus of Nazareth says, that if you are angry with a sister or a brother, you will be liable to judgment. God sees your shadows, and even the darkness is not dark to him. Where are you bitter? Where do you secretly hate your friend or your spouse or your roommate? Where do you feel disappointment because of something that God has not done? Where do you rejoice at the downfall of others in the hidden places of your heart? God sees it all, and yet, Ecclesia, this is not threat, but invitation. What does God see when he sees us? He sees our glory, he sees our beauty, and he sees our shadow, he sees our brokenness. And you know what? He doesn't turn away. Jesus on the cross stares down not just the fact of our shadow, but the consequence of it. You see, we often uh, conceptualize the, the cross in the sense of Jesus restoring something. And he does. He, he pays the debt that we have incurred because of our shadow, because of our brokenness. But he also restores all that was lost, which is the fullness of humanity. The fullness of a true and authentic self given fully to God, empowered by the Spirit of God working within us. Jesus stares down both our shadow and what we could be, our beauty on the cross, and he gives his life in order to make all things new, in order to fill that desire that we have for infinity. Psalm 139 and the cross of Christ are showing us that when God sees us, he won't look away. He sees us fully as we are, and he won't turn away. He will extend his hand in loving embrace to the entire world to embrace us, to heal us, to transform us, and to call him to himself to reignite those ambitions, those desires that we so often just simply apply to the little areas of our lives, the things that we think we can manage. God is saying, I've got so much more for you to do. In the middle of Psalm 139, the, the psalmist David responds in exuberant praise. Verse 14, it says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O God, that I know very well. Verse 17, how weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them, they are more than the sand. I come to the end and I am still with you. God's attention, his vision for us, his gaze upon us, his hand to steady and save us, his thoughts towards us are endless. And our response to the self that is on view before God, is to receive the good gift that he has made that is ourselves in awesome fear and wonder. We, as David reflects, are fearfully and wonderfully made by a master craftsman. The end of knowing ourselves as God sees us is praise. 
It's saying yes and amen to the life that God has given you. Yes and amen to the body, to the gifts, to the calling, to the people God has put in your life, to the place that he has put you in, to the particular makeup, the way that you see the world, not looking at everybody else's life. How often do we spend, how much time do we waste looking in, peering in, objectifying other people, saying if we had their bank account, their gifts, their spouse, everything would be better in our lives. And God is trying to show us ourselves, show us how he sees us and call us to receive that gift that is yourself in exuberant praise and awesome fear and wonder. Paul reflects that in the end, we will know in full, even as we are fully known. I want you to take up that exercise that we started with. Thinking about what does God see when he sees you? And I want you, in, in one hand, I want you to envision, you just have this, this the greatest thing about you. It was the, the gift that you have to offer the world. And in the other hand, and this is this may be funny to some of you, but if you remember the old Peter Pan movie, you know, the part where his shadow gets lost. And the shadow is like this thing he can peel off the wall and kind of put back and attach it again to his embodied self. I want you to think in the other hand that you're holding your shadow. So you have a gift and a shadow. And I want you to envision God. Is that God has something he wants to hand to you. But you're going to have to give him the things in both hands to receive it. The thing that God is holding is, is, is almost indescribable. It is, it, you know it's of immeasurable worth. You know it is a great gift, but you're going to need both hands to hold it. And I want you, wherever you are, to just envision yourself giving God both all of your beauty and all of your brokenness receiving the light that he's holding out for you, this gift that he holds in his hands with both hands. The gift is not just yourself. It is God's very self. He is giving you his life and his love. It is a free gift, and he will never stop offering it, not now, not into eternity. He will never stop giving of himself so that we can know our true selves to satisfy our desire for the infinite. This is what Jesus came to do, to bring us back to ourselves and to give the whole of God's divine life, Father, Spirit, and Son, to us. Will you receive it today? Grace and peace to you.